This is a very recent poem. It's called When My Mother Returns from the Dead, She's No Longer Afraid of Rodents. Look, there's a guinea pig in her purse, a snapshot of a muskrat in her compact. While she waits for me to finish packing, she plants miniature cell phones in the garden so the chipmunks can text her their selfies. On the way to lunch, she hands out business cards to Subway Rats, joins the buskers improvising a ballad to chinchillas. My mother, who has been dead and it is still dead, is no longer afraid of city or country mice or nuclear bombs or my not having health insurance or open heart surgery or tornadoes. All the fears she harbored in her bones are now just bones. They are buried and stay buried in the most generic cemetery in all South Florida. So when my mother returns from the dead, she is still dead, still my mother. But now the fear that surrounded her, like an aura of angry bees, is gone. She is part mother, part augmented son. But me, I'm still her daughter and still afraid. I hide when the cat races to the mouse hole behind the radiator. I hire caulking experts, and I can still hear her voice calling to me from 40 years ago, reminding me that those squirrels shaking autumn leaves for acorns. Watch out! Those cute squirrels, they are wild beasts and probably have rabies. Hey, poets and poetry lovers. Welcome to Having a Coke with You, the Poetry Society of New York podcast sponsored by the Radio Drama Network. Today, I am so happy to introduce our beloved guest, the kind, witty, and savvy Joanna Furman. Yes! Joanna Furman is an assistant teaching professor in creative writing at Rutgers University and the author of six, yet again, six books of poetry, including To a New Era, The Year of Yellow Butterflies, and Pageant. Her seventh book, Data Mind, a collection of darkly comic, surreal prose poems, is forthcoming from Curbstone Northwestern University Press in 2024. Poems have appeared or are forthcoming in The Baffer, The Believer, The Georgia Review, Fence, and many other journals, as well as Best American Poetry 2023, The Pushcart Prize Anthology, The Academy of American Poets Poem a Day, and The Slowdown Podcast. She first published with Hanging Loose Press as a teenager and became a co-editor in 2022. I love Joanna. She has read multiple times the New York City Poetry Festival, and she's just such a great friend of PSNY, and so I'm so happy to have her on today. In today's episode, we chatted about her upcoming book, Data Mind, Movies, Multiverses, and so much more. I can't wait for y'all to listen. The first question I asked Joanna, as I ask every one of our guests, is, what's your poetry origin story? Take a listen. I think I probably was always a poet in some sense. I remember like being in kindergarten and writing a poem about the motherness of mothers, which I thought was very profound, which I don't that doesn't mean anything. But then I don't think I thought of myself as a poet, though I loved poetry. I remember we had to memorize Blake's The Tiger. And then I remember reading Emily Dickinson in elementary school and sort of saying it to myself, you know, as an only child, like the idea of being, you know, are you lonely too? I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's me. And then I remember writing a poem on the street. I grew up in Riverdale, in Riverdale, where the pizza place later burned down. And I thought, I just remember, it was a really terrible, you know, normal middle school cliche poem. But I thought I was, you know, it was really something. I was like, now I am a poet, you know. 
that was how I thought of myself. But then after that, I thought, oh, I should probably be reading some poems. And so I would look at all the books at the library, you know, near me at the school library. And then my parents had a business in New Jersey in Teaneck. And I would go to the Teaneck library and just like kind of wander the shelves and read things. And that's how I discovered a lot of things. We here at Having a Coke with you and we, I mean me, believe wholeheartedly that behind every great poet is a great teacher. I know that I wouldn't be the person that I am today if I didn't have the teachers I had when I was growing up. I asked Joanna about the teachers that changed her life, and this is what she had to say. So I was lucky because there was so much poetry and I was such like an intense only child with very supportive parents. So actually someone in my camp said, oh, you know what? You can just take classes for adults when I was, I think, in 10th grade. So I signed up for Dean Valentine's workshop at the West Side Y. And at the time I could walk there and then I would hang out with the adult poets after. (laughs) I just, I don't know. I just sort of had no shame, I guess. I don't know. And my poems were not so bad by the time I was in 10th grade. When they were, when I was in seventh grade, they were really bad. But, you know, after a few years, they were fine. Oh my God. Jean Valentine. That is so awesome. What an incredible poet. I think I was lucky in that I had a lot of teachers who knew about surrealism. So I learned from them both at camp. And then I remember I took a class in high school at Columbia. And I remember, I think maybe that was the first time I learned about Dada. I remember. Someone was talking about Tristan Zara and ripping up newspapers. I definitely read things on my own, too. But I think those were ideas I probably learned in school. And then things I learned on my own. I think I read a lot of New York school stuff on my own. I just read a lot of random stuff. Like, I, you know, when you're a kid, you don't have a sense of like schools. I mean, I did have a sense of schools, but like I wasn't limited by that. As you get older, you kind of have more of a sense of what's cool and what's not cool. And I would just read everything. Next, I asked Joanna about the poets that changed her life. Take a listen. So I remember a couple of the books that were important to me in middle school, Adrian Rich's Leaflets and Gregory Orr's. I don't remember which book it was. I I was looking at what I have now. I have the new and selected, but I think there were other books that were before that that I got at the library. The idea of a middle schooler loving Gregory Orr is so funny to me. I mean, not that Gregory Orr isn't wonderful, like Burning in the Emptiness is remarkable, but he's had a a dark life. Like, just I'm thinking about like when I was in middle school, I read Pippi Longstocking like over and over and over again. And you read Gregory Orr. Did you have friends who loved or even liked poetry as well? I think I was really lucky because even in middle school, I met other students, other kids who were writing poetry. I went to camp and there were other kids writing poetry. I remember even there were poets who taught at my camp and we, you know, would read things that I think most kids don't get to read, like Bill Nod, and we'd play surrealist games. And that made a big impression on me. In my vast research of you, I read that you grew up loving Emily Dickinson, and I also love Emily Dickinson, so I'm hoping this is something we can bond over. Is that true? And if it was, slash is, did you have a favorite Dickinson poem growing up? Yeah, I I hadn't thought of. Maybe I was just thinking about the one with the frog, because that was the one I referenced before, and that was the one I used to read a lot as a little kid. I love this poem. It's one of my favorite Emily Dickinson poems. Uh, this and probably uh, My Life Instead of Loading Gun are my two favorites. Great ones. So this is I'm Nobody, Who Are You? Emily Dickinson, 260. I'm nobody, 
Who are you? Are you nobody too? Then there's a pair of us. Don't tell. They'd advertise. You know, how dreary to be somebody. How public, like a frog, to tell one's name, the live long June, to an admiring bog. So fun. You read that so well. That Dickinson poem for me, I mean, overlaps obviously with a lot of eco-poetics, you know, it's Embersonian or like Whitmanian. So it's so interesting that you're writing right now about the internet, which we'll get into later. I'm so excited that you also love this poem that to me is like so based in nature and reality and stillness, which is like a super interesting juxtaposition. And I think that the power in your poetry, I mean, I'm specifically thinking about the poem Lavender, which is on the Slowdown podcast, uh, just comes from juxtaposition of different phrases. And I think that that's really wonderful. And I think that you carry yourself with a lot of like juxtaposition in a really cool way. I don't know if eco-poetry has to be about nature, though, right? I think, you know, because... You could have an eco-poetry about the internet because it's sort of the replacement of nature. In the Data Mind book, there's a lot of sense of the dying planet is sort of existing on the fringes of the palms. It's like a trope that continually reappears. And it's not like I set about writing it. It just continually comes back. Because whenever you're on the internet, you're also aware of like how much power you're using. Like how, you know, there's, there's all that. That's so fascinating. I've never thought about eco-poetry that's not explicitly about nature, but it's true that the tenets of ecology are expanding in our technologically addicted world. Wow, that's really interesting. I'm I'm wondering, have you ever written a more quote-unquote traditional eco-poem, whatever that means? And if so, can we hear it? I'll read this. Love Poet writes about a field. Buckled tan strands of weeds brush against my feet. A glimpse of footprint, no, a shadow in the mud. The rough surface of a boulder looks like salt deposits in the broken light. I'll admit it. I'm, ad- I'm bored by the skinny wildflower folded near its head by the one yellow petal left wilting. From the willow branch, an inchworm dangles a J-shape. Its clear thread vanishes, then glistens. Once, when I complained about plant poems, he said, all nature poems are about who you're in love with, not what you see. A scrap of computer paper rests buried in grass, dirt drifting through its bent holes. White powder flecks a crushed leaf. Grease on a matted feather shines. Okay, so we briefly mentioned this in our last section, but I am so thrilled to officially hop right into this. We have a podcast-exclusive look at Joanna Furman's new book, Data Mind, forthcoming from Curbstone Northwestern University Press in 2024. In Data Mind, Joanna wrestles with the experience of being online as a non-digital native. Her generation entered the internet age with a lot of optimism about the possibility of a new kind of community and has watched with anguish as 
as what was sold as a utopian space has instead reflected and magnified all of the horrors and the anti-democratic demons of necrocapitalism. Still, the internet can be fun. Some of the joy and the feeling of connection is real. She's interested in exploring these simultaneous and conflicting realities and uses the trope of the internet as a way to remix the stories of the famous films, as well as a way to examine the ancient tension between the mind and the body. Here's Joanna Furman on her new book, Data Mind. The Data Mind book is everything is about the internet in some way, but one of the sections in the book, which is called The Matrix, is just focused on film, but it's imagining film as existing in the era of the internet. So even though one of the poems is called My Man Godfrey for the Internet Age, so it's sort of like rewriting the film, which is, you know, from the 20s or the early 30s, I think that's contemporary in a way. It's all prose poems. A lot of them, but not this first one, are sort of rewriting movies and imagining the movies existing in the world of the internet. The trajectory of the book is like about the early optimism that I had and a lot of people had about the internet to the sort of later disillusionment. But I mean, the thing about it is I still love the internet. I love it. I hate it. You know, I know it's like destroying us all, but I just love it so much. That's very much how I feel about social media. Like, I love it and I hate it. I'm really interested in the poems in Data Mind that are responses to movies. And before the interview started, we were chatting a bit off mic about your disdain for the original Matrix movie, which is so funny. So my question is, how did you choose the films you were writing about? And did you only write about films that you hate? I did write also about films I love. Uh, I don't know. I think maybe just the images from that film were in my mind or I didn't rewatch it. I thought about it, but I didn't. And then I was going to try to write a poem about sliding doors because that was something that I thought would be a good one to write about because people are always talking about it. And so I did rewatch that one. Um, I rewatched Singing in the Rain because I wanted to write a poem about that. I just wanted to write about it because, you know, it's about that change in technology from silent movies to sound movies in terms of like uh, thinking about technology as something that sort of changes your reality. That was the reason I wanted to write about okay, it. So confession time. I've never seen Sliding Doors, but I did just look it up right now. So I'm getting that it's about like multiverses or something like that. And please, film bros, don't kill me. And it's from 1998 starring, ooh, starring Gwyneth Paltrow, goof icon. Oh, my God. Anyways, I'd absolutely love to hear your poem inspired by Sliding Doors, even though I've never seen it. And I, I promise, I promise I'll watch it after this convo and we can talk about that later. Sliding Doors. Gwyneth Paltrow cuts her hair, dyes it blonde despite her cheating ex. In power suits, she girl bosses, hides her loneliness in the pocket square of the first Monty Python fan who mansplains crypto to her. The other Gwyneth, creature of cottage cheese canned fruit salad, stays in the analog, gives her money to a boyfriend with a stutter, braids her hair into a window blinds cord. But where is the Gwyneth who can inhabit both Gwyneths, the crying in the bathtub Gwyneth who drinks Manischewitz from a crystal vase while simultaneously gliding in an evening gown across an awestruck carpet of chandelier-kissed cater waiters? The Gwyneth who feeds her narwhal neopet while at the same instant beachcombing with a real live cockapoo. Can there be a Gwyneth inside each Gwyneth, an infinite regress of Gwyneth? If you stare at the corner of my cells, 
smashed screen. You can see their reflections, legible despite the surface's cracks. Here's the wind-up troll doll Gwyneth with a removable key, the Gwyneth with librarian glasses and leather pants, the tweeting politicians at 3 a.m. Gwyneth, the Gwyneth soaked in glistening placenta, the shaman Gwyneth with wing-shaped fangs, the nosebleed Gwyneth devouring anchovy gorgonzola pizza, the Gwyneth with a house-sized shovel with a drooling baby named after a murderous great aunt, the Gwyneth running flying a kite shaped like her own face. I think the reason everyone's obsessed with sliding doors and other like movies about multiverses is because we keep imagining that there's some other timeline where Trump didn't become president. Like if once that happened, everybody just was like, oh, it's true. There are other timelines because this can't be the only reality. This is actually a great segue to the next topic I want to chat about. I am in love with Joanna's book, To a New Era, which came out in 2021 from Hanging Loose Press. Also, congrats to Joanna on becoming an editor of Hanging Loose. That's amazing. Wheat Peas and I love Hanging Loose Press. But anyways, in The Broken Rail, Liz Axelrod wrote that Joanna Furman's To a New Era lights a path to an alternate future. Eyes open, filled with humor and empathy. It seems no coincidence this book was birthed during the Trump era when hate and polarization came back to light. Furman targets protests, apathy, and calls to action in poems that show what it feels like to be a New Yorker blindsided by this racism that popped up like weeds and sidewalk cracks. Joanna and I talked about To a New Era and the political in poetry. Take a listen. So this came out in... 2021 from Hanging Loose Press, which I wasn't, it wasn't self-published. I just became an editor of Hanging Loose. Some of the poems in the book I wrote before Trump was elected. And those are the poems at the end of the book that are more sort of optimistic and playful. And then a lot of the poems are written um, sort of in horror of the Trump era. And then there's a lot of poems in the beginning of the book about Brooklyn or New York City as a kind of refuge from the rest of the country. Live in Brooklyn is Joanna Furman. <laughs> I would love to hear a poem from To a New Era. But this is a sort of yeah, very Trump era poem. To a New Era. If history is a circle, how long will it take to lick the lollipop and get to the empty core? Could there be a sentient creature sleeping in its center? A Tootsie Pop mermaid of history? If so, wake her up. Feed her the ghostly bodies created by Twitter bots and conspiracy tambourines. Let her destroy them with her split tongue. Sing to her of babies yet to know the meaning of disgust. Teach her to kick, to run on her fishy tail, and karate chop the gears of time until they resemble steampunk frayed metal wings. Here, the radius of the sun can meet the radical endpoint of our hope, buttermilk, dolphin dreams, hot air balloons, oceanic longing and or weeping, and start again as pure, immaterial possibility. Maps all around. Something that I'm really interested in pursuing in poetry is the political work of modern poetry. And I found in that poem specifically, but also other poems that I've read by you, that I felt after reading the poem that I'm kind of woken up to a certain political reality. Does your work, either intentionally or unintentionally, have a certain political work? Like, how would you like to affect 
your audience in terms of a political consciousness, if any? Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> I would hope that that's true. I don't set a I don't like decide I'm going to write a poem to make someone feel something necessarily. It's more that I'm wrestling with my own uh, guilt, I guess, about not being more active. But trying, you know, I feel like as time goes on, I do become more active. Um, I think it's important to me to be a good citizen. I don't necessarily believe that like poets have any special role in being a citizen. It's more that I think everyone, you should care that, you know, our democracy is in serious peril. And I just feel like you can't really write anything without that being the case, you know? <laughs> so I don't know. It's weird because right now I'm I'm not writing that. I'm writing a book about my mom's death. So it feels very separate from, you know, the sort of political concerns of data mind or the book before that. So I don't know, <laughs> I guess is my answer. But I love that you feel that way. I mean, I love that experience in encountering art that makes you feel like doing something or wakes you up. I mean, I I don't often feel that in poetry, even when I read political poetry, but I've definitely had that experience. Like I remember seeing Angels in America when I was young in college and feeling that after that, oh, you know, this is like there's like that sort of pep talk at the end, which was so inspiring. I love what you just said about being a citizen, which brings us to the topic of community. PSNY at the end of the day, as you know, just wants to create community through poetry. Do you have a poetry community? I feel like I have a lot of poet friends. I notice that other poets they seem to have a lot of different kinds of friends. They have their doctor friends, their, I mean, their lawyer, you know, I don't, I don't have that. Like, I just have poet friends, you know, like if you go to a party at my house, everyone will be a poet. Like, I don't even know any other people. Like, so I, yeah, it's not like a normal poetry community, I guess, in a way, because they're just sort of disconnected poet friends, but I know a lot of poets. I mean, my husband is a playwright, so I know a few playwrights, but I have like one friend from, high school who's a lawyer and you know I'm not high school college but like I don't I don't have contemporary I don't like have friends that I've made as an adult who aren't poets shout out to your playwright husband that's so funny we were talking before recording about one of the poems in your new book which is based on the movie the warriors and I'm wondering does this poem or do any of your poems reflect your thoughts about community I don't think that when I started writing the poem, I had a sense of what it was going to be about, but I can see like after I write it, that it's sort of about community in a way, which I think the book is kind of about because one of the questions that I'm interested in is how is internet a community? How is it not a community? You know, The Warriors is a movie about sort of groups of people traveling together. As you might have guessed, my question now is, can we hear this poem? Here goes. The Warriors. I'm rewriting the script to the warriors. In this version, our gang travels subterranean media, drinking radioactive light beer, or is it preverbal memories? When they arrive at the boardwalk, their surveillance cameras flicker. Strangers battle each other with feathers or tweets. After the hero takes off his clothes, he keeps removing parts of himself until all that's left is a heart-shaped gap where his brain used to be. In the morning, the abandoned shopping mall is transformed into a hot dog stand selling empty buns. The zero at the heart of the narrative opens its mouth and swallows the plot. Two oceans become one. Five oceans become 59,000 bodies of water. The wandering men become wandering mouths, then clicking 
fingers pretending to be free. The computer transcribes the motorcycle's dreams and spits them out as broken glass, then data. My childhood is dismantled and repackaged as snacks. What the audience remembers of the fight is just a series of dots and dashes. What the fist remembers is the moment before the smack, that golden pocket of quiet. What I remember of my script drips from the sky onto the glass keyboard. What the crowd remembers is the journey below, what it's like to travel as a group, to see all the members as one body, then to watch it break apart. In listening back to this episode, I think that we read poetry out loud in this conversation more than in any other episode thus far, which is so amazing. So I just had to ask Joanna about her thoughts on reading poetry out loud. Take a listen. Yeah, I mean, when you first asked me the question, I had just come back from a poetry reading. And I do think that when you go to readings or when you read, you know, just books on your own, there are things that you kind of store away for later. I was thinking about that because I went to two poetry readings in the last couple of weeks. And I remember in both of them, I went to see Annabelle Lee read it and um, John Yao. And I also went to see Nada Gordon and Sean Cole and Joe Elliott read, both at Unnameable. And, but anyway, in both, two, both of those readings, I was really struck by this one poem that Annabelle Lee read that had cemetery at the end of every word and the poem that Sean Cole read that had the word marathon at the end of every line. And I was like, how come I've never written a poem like that? That's so fun. And like, they were both great poems. So I know like eventually I'll get around to doing that kind of poem because I was thinking, oh, that's just, you know, I've certainly read poems like that before, you know, where they have, I think I, I even had a packet about the idea of like reverse anaphora, but I haven't actually succeeded in writing one. So it's like something that, you know, just in the back of my mind that when the right time is, I'll, I'll definitely do it. Pardon my Gen Z-ness for this upcoming question, but you're basically saying that poetry read out loud hits different? <laughs> yeah, it definitely hit me in a different way. Because, it, you know, obviously I've read lots of poems like that, and it, I, I think I even taught a lesson like that, but it just never really sunk in. And then somehow I felt hearing those poems, they were really moving and really inspiring. And, and so I don't, I sometimes feel that when I'm alone reading, but there's something about hearing things in a group of people out loud that's really special. To close out this conversation, Joanna and I talked about her writing process and any advice that she has for poets and poets-to-be. Take a listen. I think, you know, for me, a lot of the poems just come out of like more of a subconscious state. So I don't like usually like set out to write something. It just kind of comes to me or an idea comes to me. And then I just kind of sit with it for a while and try different permutations of it until something doesn't seem boring. <laughs> something kind of sparks. I feel like, you know, for the sliding doors poem, I just remember I had so many different starts to it on my phone and they were all, pretty, I thought, pretty bad. And then somehow I was able to write it in a way that didn't horrify me, <laughs> but sometimes I'm just not able to, you know, they just seem so dead. 
I definitely feel like a lot of my poems do come out literally out of my dreams. Like the first poem that I read about my mother and the rodents, that was just sort of the idea. The spark of it came from a dream. And then I sort of tried to get myself into enough of a sort of dream state that I could write the rest of it. And I even think it's possible that that warrior's poem might have had a sort of dream image at the start. And I think a lot of times it's like pieces of language that I overhear that come from dreams that then I sort of follow through with and try to get myself into a kind of dream state so I'm not overthinking or I'm not trying to control the idea too much. A dream state. I love that. Also a great title for a book of poetry. I'm sure it's out there. Uh, How do you get into that state? By meditating or something like that? Um, Try. I mean, for me, I'm often dizzy. So (laughs) that's like a good way to know that I could probably write poetry because I'm not thinking clearly. So I just kind of lean into that. So to end off this episode, I'm wondering if you have any advice for our audience on writing poetry or getting into that dream state or anything else that you want to say. Final thoughts. Uh, First poem I I read, I remember most clearly because I just wrote it, was I wrote it mainly on the subway. Like I had an idea from my dream that I'd written in my phone and then I was on the subway and I was on New Jersey Transit and then I could kind of work on it because I wasn't really awake. I had to wake up at 6.30 to get to school half awake and kind of was able to just sort of separate myself from everything around me and just sort of think and play with those ideas. But usually it's sort of when I'm in that kind of half awake state is when I'm probably doing the best work. Like when I'm really trying to be in editor mode, I'm not going to write good poems. This has been an episode of Having a Cook With You, the Poetry Society of New York podcast. Thank you so much to Joanna Furman for having a Coke with me today. Joanna, congrats on your upcoming book. I cannot wait to buy it. Thank you to the Radio Drama Network for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you to our editor, Debs Baird, our phenomenal music composer, Yair Evnin, and the staff of PSNY for your incredible support. And most importantly, thank you to you all for listening. I wonder who we'll talk to next. Tune in every Friday to find out. 